do you have a hero? Do you have a hero, someone that you admire for their courage, achievements, qualities? Throughout history, cultures have invented heroes. The Greeks, of course, had the heroes of their mythology, and then comic books and movies have created modern superheroes. But do you have any real-life heroes? Part of our modern hero culture tries to make celebrities into heroes, and we often get disappointed because someone that we looked up to ends up being involved in a scandal of some sort. And so I have a friend that says, if you're going to pick a hero, you should pick one who is already dead. (laughs) That way you know that you won't end up reading about their involvement in some shocking scandal that will crush your hopes and dreams. In fact, his hero was C.S. Lewis. Well, if you need a hero, someone to truly admire that won't end up disappointing you, let me suggest that you look to the real life hero that we read about in Acts chapter six and seven, Stephen. The book of Acts is the divinely inspired historical account of the early church, where we read about the people and the ministry following the ascension of Jesus. And we've seen this pattern of the church gathered together and then out into the world. The church gathers together and then out into the world. And each time they go out into the world, there is an increasing level of persecution that comes because of their engagement in the world and a world that opposes the gospel. The accounts, including the persecution, has focused on the ministry of the apostles up to this point, but last week we saw the formation of the original seven deacons, and Luke, in this book of Acts, now follows the ministry of the deacons for the next couple of chapters. The end of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 is the account of Stephen, a true hero, if ever there was one. Before we read about him, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our great God, we are not great people, and there are no great people, except for those who are made great by you. As we read of Stephen and become encouraged by his testimony and witness, may we be reminded that you take each of us, not just who are ordinary, but even us who are naturally loaded with rebellion and sin and would be naturally opposed to you. And you do a redeeming, restoring, transforming work within us. Pray that you might even do that this morning as your Holy Spirit comes to bear witness to the reading and proclamation of your word. To that end, we pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. I thought a lot about whether to just read this whole account as one, and I'll tell you a little bit later why I'm not going to do that. We're going to go through a section at a time in order to really capture what's happening in each moment so that we can see Stephen's spirit, Stephen's sermon, and then Stephen's stoning. And so first, to see Stephen's spirit, we go to the end of Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. Listen to God's word. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, 
Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What we read here about Stephen is similar to what we have read about the apostles, that he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And so many people watch and hear Stephen and they are amazed and come to embrace Jesus Christ as a result. But others, hearing the same message and seeing the same thing, oppose Christ and his message and messengers. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary says, Satan opposes God's people either by deceit or violence. And here we see both in the case of Stephen. If you've ever been falsely accused of something, you know how difficult that can be. School bullies are famous for this, and we all have childhood memories of somebody saying something about us that wasn't true and it spread throughout the school. Gossip around the workplace can be very damaging. And I certainly wish I had risen above false accusations like Stephen did. We read in verse 10, they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And since they could not win any debates with him, they had to make up lies. I think sometimes we're afraid to evangelize, to share the good news of the gospel in word or deed because we're not sure if we can win the debate. We're worried that someone might have a question that we can't answer or raise a point we can't refute. Well, apologetics, defending the faith, is different than evangelism. And often, when people are asking questions or raising a point, it is on the attack. We really do have the answer but can get intimidated by the ferocity of the person. And those are extremes. And we remember that some people will hear the gospel and are moved by the Holy Spirit to receive it. While those who go on the attack are those who oppose the gospel as part of a spiritual rebellion. Even against such rebellion and the false accusations in the presence of the Sanhedrin, Stephen rises above, and verse 15 is remarkable. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now probably when we hear that phrase with modern ears, we think that that means that he looked sweet and innocent. Tender moments when we look at our little children and think, oh, my little angel. And other times we look at our children and think, who is this demon child before me? To say that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel doesn't mean sweet, but full of the Holy Spirit 
and wisdom from the spirits. While being falsely accused, he was unmoved by them, but moved by the spirits. At the time, they certainly would not have described him as looking like an angel since they're opposed to him. We remember that Luke is getting much of his uh, eyewitness report from Paul. We'll get to him in a little bit. Paul, who after his conversion is able to testify, having been there, that Stephen did have this sort of supernatural glow that at the time as Saul, he was opposed to, but in his conversion was able to see correctly. And so those who are opposed to the gospel are so because they're actually in spiritual rebellion. They're not warmed by Stephen's face, but incensed all the more. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, and the Sanhedrin opposed to the Holy Spirit. The holiness of the angels throughout redemptive history caused men to fall on their face, trembling in fear in the presence of holiness. And in our secular world today, angels have gone from being holy messengers to sweet-faced cherubs that make us feel better about ourselves. The celebration of the Holy Spirit has given way to the celebration of the human spirits. And so we have a worldview battle in our current culture of secular humanism celebrating humanity and the human spirit versus the celebration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I love a good human interest story as much as anyone. And I enjoy watching sports and the arts in all of its forms, both of which can move us profoundly emotionally. The secular world elevates such emotionalism as spiritual. And even churches have begun to utilize emotional manipulation with music and worship that tries to move the heartstrings. And we look for music and messages with which we can identify It is a man-centered ministry and runs counter to the genuine God-centered ministry to which we are called. Tim Keller recently said this, the early church was seen as a threat to the social order since it would not honor all deities. The church today is seen as a threat to the social order since it won't honor all identities. Let me say that once again. The early church was seen as a threat to the social order since it would not honor all deities. The church today is seen as a threat to the social order since it will not honor all identities. The early church was engaged in the battle between deities. What God do you serve? And why won't you serve the local gods? Today's church is asked to honor all humanity. Why won't you honor everyone, no matter how they identify? That's just the way God made me. You should accept me however I choose to identify. And so when we talk about Stephen's spirit, we're not talking about his human spirit. When it says he was full of wisdom, he's not full of a human wisdom, but he is filled with the Holy Spirit that even changed his appearance and his attitudes and his actions. And so having seen Stephen's spirit, we hear Stephen's sermon. And if you've ever read through the Bible in a year as a devotional plan, there are passages that you enjoy more than others. And sometimes you get behind and you look at certain long passages and think, man, I'm, how am I going to get through all this, right? Some of the easier ones you can do, but then there's those harder ones like reading through the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. 
and I suppose only the most legalistic among us really try to read every name in the genealogies. You kind of scan through those suckers, right? But there's times that you come to these long historical sections and you're kind of tempted to read through those, especially because you feel like I'm going to read that same kind of thing again. It gets repetitive. And there's a number of times when I would try to read through the Bible and I would come to Stephen's speech here in chapter 7 and see this whole chapter, this one long speech, and think, I'm just going to kind of skim read it and I'll count that as good enough. It's hard to read because of its length. And it is, in fact, the longest address in the book of Acts, longer even than the addresses of Peter and Paul. I'm so glad that I got a chance to study this because I will never be tempted to skim read it again. There are four points and then an application. And I want to go through each of these in turn that we might truly grasp what it is that Stephen is doing here. So Stephen first speaks about Abraham in the first eight verses of chapter 7. Listen to these. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days later after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Now, Stephen doesn't pick historical persons and events randomly. It's not a simple historical narrative recount. Stephen is driving at a main point. Verse 2, he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still living in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, why mention this? It's because we see that God appeared to Abraham outside the land of Israel. Because God is the God of the whole world and not just the God of Israel or the Israelites. Verse 5, God gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. In other words, Abraham was always a pilgrim in the land that would become Israel. We should always recognize that our true citizenship is not earthly. Hebrews 11, that great chapter on faith lived out in the ancients says by faith Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country he was looking forward to the city whose foundations whose architect and builder is God the kingdom of God is not earthly it is spiritual And so it is folly to pursue permanent earthly blessings. In our Sunday school class last week, we looked at Jesus riding in and the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday on a donkey. Not a grand parade for the king of kings, 
but a very humble king whose kingdom is not earthbound. We are building a kingdom on earth, but it is not a kingdom of the earth. The church of Jesus Christ should not be looking for earthly rule. Certainly, we look to have an impact on every aspect of life and existence on earth, but not an earthbound rule. Whenever the church has or desires power on earth, it seems that we lose our sense of God. We don't want to be persecuted and oppressed, but it seems that it's only when this happens that we have the clearest sense of God. And so Stephen is immediately emphasizing the fact that God appears and speaks and reigns beyond the land of Israel. God is not earthbound, and true God followers are not earthbound like the Sanhedrin is. And then that takes us to the next key figure here, the next point of Stephen's sermon, beginning at verse 9, Joseph. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. And then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Joseph's own brothers, out of jealousy, sold him into slavery into a foreign land. Verse 9, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Now, Stephen is rather tactful here in calling them the patriarchs, but they were Joseph's own brothers, jealous of him and persecuting him. And here, Stephen is making the clearest statement in all the scriptures about Joseph as a foreshadowing of Christ, hated by his own brothers, who persecuted him. In fact, Stephen could probably stop his sermon right now and go to the application that he's going to make later. At this point, the Sanhedrin probably did not see the point yet and would have simply agreed as to the historical accuracy of Stephen's account. But Joseph, he's saying, was hated by his own brothers and they persecuted him, selling him into slavery. Likewise, Jesus is hated by his own brothers, you of the Sanhedrin, And you had him killed. Stephen doesn't say that quite yet, but that's his point. And he's driving towards it. And he drives hard in the next section, the longest, on Moses, which really answers the question that they're asking about whether or not he was speaking against Moses. Listen to this full account beginning at verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. 
Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over to look more closely. He heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt, did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. And this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech, the star of your God, Rephan the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Those who opposed Stephen had built their lives around keeping the law of Moses, the customs Moses handed down to us. And so speaking against Moses was their main concern. And here Stephen shows that Moses was also rejected by his own people. Even when he tried to fight the injustice, rather than that being a rallying cry, they threatened to turn him in. And so Moses was forced to flee to Midian and spend the next 40 years of his life. 40 years. Wow. It's a whole generation. Many would say the prime years of his life. But then God appeared to Moses. Where? In Midian, 
outside of the land of Israel and away from the people of Israel, just like with Abraham. And yet God made that place holy ground. Stephen's point, you cannot make God Jewish and not also the God of the Gentiles. God is not an ethnic God. And while we might be tempted to agree emphatically, we should be convicted by our own affinity for the pictures of the California Jesus, right? Blonde hair and blue eyes. And we grew up with Sunday school materials that pictured biblical characters as Caucasian, even the flannel graph characters. Many evangelical Christians seem to think that making America great is the key to the kingdom of Christ. This is certainly not advocating for today's view that all religions worship the same God, but it is a reminder that God is not tied to a particular land. He's not tied to a particular language, as we saw the Muslims do that with the Arabic language. He's not tied to a particular ethnicity. In fact, when you look at world religions, Christianity is unique in this way. Of all peoples, of all religions, we should be the least racist. However, because Western civilization was so shaped by Christianity, it has become viewed as a middle-class white man's religion. It is perhaps this current generation that will recall the global God, that God is not tied to the United States or the West, but that God is the God of the whole world. Stephen drives home this point by showing that Moses was rejected again even after the Exodus, while out in the wilderness, having showed miraculous signs and wonders, kind of like Stephen just did. They are out in the wilderness and made the golden calf idol. God's people have routinely been tempted to worship the gods of the local culture against the true God. And it's to this that Luke then pulls in the direct quote from Amos chapter 5. And we've read that account in context earlier in the service, that the Israelites determined that as God's chosen people, that the day of the Lord would be a good day for them. And yet Amos, in a word of judgment because of their rebellion and religious hypocrisy, speaks it against them. And here Stephen applies it directly to the Sanhedrin. In fact, you'd have to really look at this to, to recognize, but he changes the words beyond Damascus, as it is in Amos, to here beyond Babylon. And that's because Amos was talking to the northern kingdom, which Damascus was featured, and Stephen is talking to the leaders of the southern kingdom of Judah. So Babylon is what they would hear. In fact, Stephen might say to us that we would be sent into exile beyond Butler or beyond North America and Europe. And then we go to one last short section to finish the point, and that is of the wilderness tabernacle and Jerusalem temple, because they were concerned about this blasphemy of the temple being torn down. So beginning at verse 44, our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having rejected the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, 
and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen's accusers had heard him say that Jesus would destroy the temple. Stephen's in effect saying, yeah, this temple will come down because this temple is only temporal, earthly. God dwells where God chooses to dwell. And his glory is not in the glory of the building, but in the glory of himself. The earth is his footstool. You can't put God in a box, even as big a box as the temple. God is bigger than that. Be less concerned about the temple and be more concerned about the fullness of God's glory in heaven and on earth. But you drive home the application, beginning at verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Briefly, there's three points that he makes in this application, three accusations. First, the resisting of the Holy Spirit, as they had always done. Second, the persecuting of prophets, as they had always done. And third, breaking the law of Moses, that as it turns out, is what they had always done. And they could not even pause for a moment to consider whether it was true. But immediately go on the attack. Beginning at verse 54, the stoning of Stephen. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were still stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Not even pausing for a moment to consider whether what he said was true, but in anger immediately going on the attack, so that Stephen is what is known as the first Christian martyr. The word martyr means witness, and Jesus had said at his ascension, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He said, you are to be my martyrs here, there, and everywhere. To be a witness of Christ involves sacrifice and trials. may not be stoned to death, but you will be persecuted, or you might not be doing it right. When the U.S. and the West was friendlier to Christianity, there was a resting in that reality, and Christianity became culturally and even politically correct that the U.S. is less than friendly, even increasingly hostile to Christianity, reminds us that a true Christian witness is sacrificial and not easy. We live in what's being called a post-Christian culture, which may be okay, 
because a Christian culture is tempted to soften the full gospel witness. As part of this, the Western church went through a prolonged period when it was all about doctrinal purity and we lost sight of mercy outreach. The book of Acts shows that the early church focused on both, gathering to feed on the means of grace and going out fully engaged in mercy ministry. The U.S. church lost sight of the latter during much of the 1900s because of doctrinal concerns. The difficulty of this century may be the other side, a need to engage in caring for people that's not done at the expense of doctrinal purity. The Christian witness involves both doctrine and service, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right doctrine, right practice. Remember that the Old Testament covenant community was put into exile for idolatry and for neglect of the needs of the covenant community. And so we don't suggest that Bible studies are more important than connecting to the needs of people, but neither is it less important. Individually, those who are focused on outreach may need to build more Bible study into your life. Those who are focused on doctrine may need to build more outreach and relationship forming in your life. As a congregation, we seek opportunities for both, an exhortation of both. We may be persecuted for our doctrine and for our outreach. Stephen shows that they're connected. Stephen, one of the seven deacons leading the outreach of the church, daily deaconing of food to widows, but persecuted, falsely accused for blaspheming God. I almost have to think from Stephen's point of view, I'm making sure that widows have food. How can you accuse me of blasphemy? Because that's what happens with those who are opposed to the gospel being carried out in word and deed. I'm sharing the good news of eternal life through the sacrifice of Christ freely offered in the gospel. How can you accuse me of oppressing people? Because that's what happens with those who are opposed to the gospel being carried out in word and deed. You don't have to be offensive. People will be offended. And these days, people are even more easily offended. We say, look, good news, free bread because of Christ. And the response, I hate you and your doctrine. Um, Okay. Good news, free life because of Christ. Response, I hate you and your doctrine. Um, Okay. And it takes us to Saul. And verse 58 tells us that meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Saul who later converted and we know as the Apostle Paul. In order not to confuse him with King Saul in the Old Testament, our children came to know him as Saul Paul. So you got Saul and this is Saul Paul. In fact, if you ask anybody in third, fourth, and fifth grade in Sunday school, they'll talk to you about Saul Paul. And people brought Stephen's clothes to Saul Paul in order to get his approval. The whole thing would be almost comedic if it wasn't so tragic. Stephen sees the glory of God and says, look, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God and the most distinguished of people, religious and political officials, put their ears, plug their ears and shout out the top of their voices. So they don't hear, la, 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 I'm not listening to you, Stephen, la, la, la. They suddenly become a mob, no due process, and they carry out a death penalty that by Roman law, they do not have the authority to do. They murdered a man in hateful rage, not just rage against Stephen, 
but rage against God himself. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, sees the heavens open, sees Jesus at the right hand of God, and the Sanhedrin, full of themselves, sees their own ambition and approval of their own heinous actions, and they come over to Saul, Paul, as if to say, did we do a good job? Are you proud of us? Did we do it the way you'd want to do it? By faith, may we be full of the Holy Spirit and not ourselves. By faith, may we celebrate the Holy Spirit above the human spirit and be able to discern the difference. By faith, may all of God's elect come to faith in Christ, even as others respond in spiritual oppression. By faith, may we be martyr witnesses of Jesus Christ, even at the risk of persecution. And may the truth set us free. Amen.